Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault and sexual coercion that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In October 2011, a woman named Liz wandered through the racks of clothes at the Canberra Mall. She could have spent the rest of her afternoon there, browsing with dozens of other Australians who had come to shop, but suddenly, a Korean woman blocked her path. She was glamorous, beautiful, and looked at Liz with a mix of familiarity and admiration. Without hesitating, the woman asked Liz, "'Excuse me, are you a model?' The stranger phrased the question more like a statement, as if they knew that the answer was yes. Liz was beautiful, with bright blue eyes and perfect skin, but she'd never been asked this question so bluntly before. Liz explained to the fashionable stranger that she wasn't a model, but the two women began chatting anyway. The stranger casually mentioned that she belonged to a religious group that was holding a Christian art show, and Liz could participate if she was interested. Liz said that sounded nice and gave the stranger her email address. The two women parted ways with the promise of seeing each other again at the event. Within a few months of meeting, this undercover recruiter helped Liz transform into an entirely different person. First, she moved into a house with a group of strangers. Then she stopped talking to her family And by 2012, Liz declared her full allegiance to Jung Myung Sok, a middle-aged Korean man who claimed to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. For the next two episodes, we'll discuss Providence, a South Korean cult that grooms young women to serve as spiritual brides for the group's enigmatic leader. This week, we'll focus on the leader himself, Jung Myung Sok will cover his upbringing, education, and the spiritual foundation upon which he built his movement. Next week, we'll broaden our scope to look at Providence as a whole. We'll discuss its expansion to other countries, its use of manipulative recruitment techniques, and how the group maintained its followers during a massive scandal. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Providence goes by several names. Sometimes it's referred to as the Christian Gospel Mission, Jesus Morning Star, or simply JMS. But in every iteration of this group, its mission begins with one thing, the birth of its Messiah. Jung Myung Sok was born on March 16, 1945, in the remote South Korean village of Sumukmi. Jung was the third of seven children, all living in this isolated community in the southern region of the country. The terrain was mountainous and lush with vegetation, with frequent waves of mist that blanketed the forest. But life in Samakmi was complicated, to say the least. And for Jung, this upbringing directly contributed to his spiritual journey toward religious zealotry. At the time, South Korea was amid a massive spiritual upheaval. In 1945, they won independence from their Japanese colonizers, a triumph after decades of foreign rule. The new religious freedom and independence came with another cultural shift. For Christian missionaries, this was the perfect time to spread the word of God to South Koreans, particularly those who lived close to the northern border. And Sumuk Mi was an ideal target for missionary work. Tucked away in the northern mountains of the country, it promised a population of people who were interested in beginning a spiritual practice truly their own. Missionaries first exposed Jung Myung Sok to Christianity when he was a student at a Christian school in town. It isn't clear how his family cemented religion into their home, or what about Christianity seized Jung. But according to Jung, this first exposure to the Bible marked a massive shift in his life. Jung's family was poor, and religion made the young boy hopeful about the future in a way that he'd never felt before. Over time, his connection to God grew far stronger than anyone anticipated. He would soon begin speaking directly to Jesus. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Dr. Yanya Lalich, who specializes in extremist groups, cult leaders gain a sense of superiority after experiencing a self-proclaimed encounter with God. She explained to Refinery29 that sometimes the first so-called vision is what plants the idea that they're bestowed with a special gift. It's easy to see how some could take this idea and decide that they should start their own spiritual movement. Jung's childhood connection with Jesus is an excellent example of this foundational moment. Not only would it show that his entire life was marked by spiritual devotion, but it would also help prove that he had special abilities and a divine connection with the spiritual world. But for now, Jung Myung Sok wasn't quite ready to publicly declare himself a messenger of God. He remained very devout, but there isn't any information to suggest that Jung intended to become a religious leader at this time. Instead, historic events largely influenced his early adult life. And in 1966, it took a sharp turn. 
That year, Jung enlisted in the South Korean Army to fight in the Vietnam War. Perhaps Jung viewed this as an opportunity to leave Sumuk Mi and the poverty of his youth. But this period is also a strange blind spot in Jung's history. The only information about his experience in the war comes from his website, which also serves as a propaganda site for Providence. There, Jung's legacy as a soldier is used as another example of his Christ-like behavior. The website claimed that Jung refused to kill his enemies and miraculously avoided any injury during his time at the front. But none of that has been confirmed by more reputable sources. All that's known is that, after serving for three years, Jung was discharged in 1969. After returning home, in an attempt to further his spiritual journey, Jung joined the Yangmansan and Samgaksan prayer centers in South Korea. These prayer centers were located in secluded, mountainous regions, not unlike the landscape of his youth. Here, Jung could be around other individuals who sought answers to spiritual questions without the distraction of daily life. According to Jung, at the spiritual centers, he fasted for 70 days while studying the Bible. There's no proof of this claim, but it served a purpose for Jung. Treated as fact, Jung's physical challenge exemplified sacrifice on behalf of religious growth. As Jung met more spiritually-minded people, he began hearing about another exciting religious movement, the Unification Church of World Christianity, or the Unification Church for short. Apparently, the enigmatic leader of this Christian sect claimed to be the next messiah. He preached to thousands of people who adored him and did anything he asked. Jung listened intently. A man who supposedly had a unique connection with God, that didn't sound so unusual. If anything, it was similar to how Jung viewed himself. This mysterious religious leader had heard the same call from God, and Jung decided to seek out the Unification Church to learn more. Little did he know that this choice would change his life forever. The story of Providence just beginning. Coming up, Jung gets a taste of the Messiah life and can't get enough. Hi, listeners, it's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. In 1970, 25-year-old Jung Myung-sok was still finding his footing on a spiritual path. The South Korean army discharged him from duty, giving him the freedom to deepen his spiritual education. Jung began hearing more and more about a new mysterious religious group, the Unification Church of World Christianity. Its leader claimed to be a messenger from God, a messiah tasked with spreading a holy message to the masses. Jung had always felt a deeper connection to God than the rest of the world. And here, another man claimed to have the same relationship. Jung was fascinated and had to know more. So, in the early 1970s, the young man left the prayer center and joined the Unification Church. By the mid-20th century, the Unification Church of World Christianity had established itself as a popular but controversial Christian sect. Though, depending on who you asked, it was sometimes considered a cult. Reverend Sun Myung Moon founded the group in 1954. According to Moon, the purpose of creation was to experience the joy of love through matrimony. Reverend Moon believed that Adam and Eve's greatest failure was in having sex without getting married, a decision that plunged the world into a state of selfish love. Moon preached that God had tried to restore this mission through the implementation of a Messiah, but it never worked. Jesus couldn't complete God's plan because he never married. That left room for a new spiritual leader to pick up where Jesus left off. Moon declared himself that very person, the newest Messiah tasked with completing God's plan and repopulating the earth with his disciples. And so far it had been a wild success. Moon himself had married and created what he referred to as the ideal family, one that was profoundly religious and maintained traditional gender roles for husband and wife. Now it was the duty of the flock to follow his example. Members of the Unification Church, sometimes called Moonies by the media, entered into relationships of Moon's design. He often took it upon himself to arrange relationships between members of the group, encouraging them to tie the knot as soon as possible. And this practice made the group notorious. In the early 1970s, the Unification Church was known for their mass wedding ceremonies. During these events, Reverend Moon officiated upwards of 10,000 weddings at once, looking out over a sea of white dresses and tuxedos packed into Seoul's Olympic Stadium. Moon declared that this act served as a method of repopulating God's kingdom on earth. But this jubilant quality of the Unification Church came with a price. Moon's vision of God's plan was heavily reliant on a strict idea of gender roles. According to Moon, marriage combined two expressions of life, 
Sung Song, the casual and masculine role, and Hyung Song, the resultant feminine role. Female members were ordered to live in chastity until they married other members of the group and were given Moon's blessing. Moon made sure to enact total control over the romantic and sexual lives of his members. Even by the 1970s, when the Unification Church had expanded its missionary work to Japan and the United States, Moon decided all things matrimonial. Moon didn't allow any room to debate or disavow him. It was all part of God's plan. Moon's emphasis on marriage and traditional gender roles served as a simple but extremely efficient form of control over his group. According to Alexandria Stein, a former cult member and author whose work tackles the complicated nature of cults, this is especially true for female members. Stein explained to NBC News that female cult members are at risk of a particular kind of sexual control. She wrote, Women's sexual lives, their lives as mothers, and their ability to control their own reproductive choices are all upended within cultic organizations. In the Unification Church, female members were encouraged to disavow their families and drop out of school to get married to male members. The Church assumed that these women would then have children to do their part in repopulating God's kingdom. And all the while, Moon served as a parent-slash-God, leading his members closer toward his holy vision. Moon showed a powerful ability to mask extreme control as a celebration of marriage and love. Somehow, he not only maintained the Unification Church, but expanded it. Recruiters were taught to bring in new members with something like flirting with potential members and inviting them to participate in weekend-long retreats. Sometimes recruiters wouldn't even mention the church at first, but once they brought a potential member to the retreat, the mask fell. A weekend retreat suddenly turned into a 40-day stay in an isolated mansion with no connection to the outside world. During these so-called retreats, members were indoctrinated with Moon's beliefs. From the beginning of his time with the Unification Church, Jung appeared struck by the Reverend's unchecked power. Moon's control techniques worked like clockwork. He held incredible influence over his flock and commanded thousands of people. We don't know much about Jung's role in the Unification Church, though some sources say that he acted as an anti-communist instructor. This kind of rhetoric served a large part in the group's public image, and a big reason why they were able to operate for so long with little skepticism. Fear of communist influence was a common subject in South Korea, particularly after the trauma of the Korean War. And a fringe group like the Unification Church cloaked their belief system with this more palatable message. Jung's role as an instructor served as a way of distracting the public from the group's more controversial beliefs. And as Jung saw, it worked very well. Jung was a unique member of the Unification Church. From what we can tell, Jung clearly never fully devoted himself to Moon or his beliefs because he saw this group as an inspiring point of reference for his own spiritual journey. As a member, Jung had an intimate knowledge of Moon's teachings and methods of operating his group. Jung was likely aware of the intense separation techniques that Moon's recruiters used on potential new members. And the young man was likely present during those enormous wedding ceremonies. There he could watch as Moon commanded an arena of couples and bellowed out to them with a microphone. 
Jung appeared profoundly impressed by the belief system that the Unification Church created. Reverend Moon ran his movement like a ship, maintaining complete control over every element of his members' lives. Moon became the example of what a messiah could do, how he could command his followers, and soon, Jung had some ideas of his own. In 1978, Jung was 33 years old and had belonged to the Unification Church for eight years, closely watching its inner workings. But throughout his time with the group, Jung never strayed from his belief that he was special. God had bestowed a holy mission to him, not Moon. And luckily for Jung, the tides were about to turn in his favor. By the end of the 1970s, the massive growth of the Unification Church had alarm bells sounding both in South Korea and abroad. Families complained that their children were being brainwashed by a dangerous cult and called upon the authorities to do something to stop the man responsible. Soon after, Moon began receiving court summons documents from multiple countries. In a last-ditch attempt to appease the public, the group slowed its controversial recruitment practices. But this did nothing but decline membership, while animosity remained high. While others in the organization started to panic, Jung saw an opportunity. He wanted control. Jung believed that the era of Reverend Moon was over. To Jung, Moon had failed his mission, just like the other so-called messiahs who claimed to be sent by God to spread his word on earth. Moon's mounting legal issues were an easy way for Jung to justify that claim. The Reverend put the group in danger. In Jung's mind, that was hardly the behavior of a messiah worth following. As he critiqued Moon's many failings, Jung bolstered his spiritual power. The language was simple. Moon wasn't the real messiah, but he was. The young man even used much of the same language that Moon once did. Jung emphasized his early connection with Jesus and described a similar vision that he received from God. Like Moon, Jung had been instructed to serve the world as the next messiah, tasked with the suspiciously vague mission to spread peace to the masses through the holy word of God. But unlike Moon, who struggled to keep his movement afloat, Jung promised the more doubtful members of the Unification Church that this new movement would offer true salvation to its members. Some Moonies were suspicious of Jung's message. They'd spent so long living alongside Moon's teachings that this new so-called savior was nothing more than a threat. In their minds, Moon would resolve his legal issues abroad and return to the group more powerful than before. But for less optimistic members of the group, Jung's proposal offered a convenient way out of an embarrassing situation. It seemed easier for them to justify following a new and improved savior than to admit they had wasted time on a man who had taken advantage of them. With a growing number of people willing to abandon ship, Jung seemed ready to take the step he'd always felt destined to make. And in 1980, he established a new movement, one that painted him as the next messiah. Jung referred to his new movement by multiple names. At first, he called it Jesus Morningstar, or JMS, which coincidentally matched Jung's initials. But it would soon be recognized by another name, Providence. 
Normally, this term refers to the protective care that God, not man, can offer believers. But for Jung, those things weren't mutually exclusive. He was finally ready to show the world his divine power. Coming up, Jung turns providence into the next big thing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now back to the story. In 1978, Jung Myung-sok finally saw the opportunity he'd waited for. The massive Unification Church was failing. Reverend Moon was suddenly absent, desperately trying to resolve a growing number of legal issues. That left a vacuum in the spiritual world of South Korea, a space for a new messiah to debut. Over his nearly 10 years of service in the Unification Church, the 35-year-old never lost sight of his true calling. He, not Reverend Moon, was destined to spread God's message of love to the masses. After leaving the Unification Church, Jung worked to grow a group of followers who were willing to join him. He delivered sermons in the streets of Seoul, inviting skeptical observers to consider him their true messiah. To many, Jung appeared charismatic and welcoming. He promised them a new and improved religious sect, one that didn't run the risk of collapse, and slowly, the number of converts grew. In these very early years, many were attracted to Providence for a very simple reason. Providence's belief system was clean, simple, and familiar. Jung emphasized the idea that God would send a Messiah to enact his mission of love, conveniently naming himself as that very Savior. He also employed a similarly unique interpretation of the Bible, and one that cast doubt on more traditional teachings. Jung established this through something he called the 30 Lessons, which he molded after a similar system in the Unification Church. These so-called lessons were more accurately points of debate, where Jung took sections of the Bible and reanalyzed them to fit his belief system. One lesson took a story in which Jesus caused a coin to appear in a fish's mouth. Jung explained that while this was a miracle, it wasn't a particularly useful one. Jung encouraged his followers to ask why, for example, Jesus chose to remain in poverty if he could make money appear with his holy powers. Jung structured each of the 30 lessons like this, where he critiqued a story from the New Testament in which Jesus performed miracles. The 30 lessons served dual purposes, to cast over Jesus' spiritual powers and, in turn, show Jung's superior abilities. 
Just like the Unification Church, Providence made a point to show that its leader would succeed where previous messiahs have failed. But more than that, Jung presented himself as an extension of God, and therefore worthy of the same kind of devotion that one would give to an actual deity. Jung's self-deification came with a very specific idea about how his followers should show their love to him. Often this involved questions of marriage and sexual intimacy. While Reverend Moon had painted himself as the ultimate matchmaker and had the final say in all marriages, Jung took things one step further. Rather than use his godlike power to match people to each other, Jung declared that he was the ultimate match. For male followers, Jung presented himself as the ultimate savior, an omniscient, almost paternal figure in their lives. But for women, Jung had a very different idea in mind. He instructed his female followers to envision God as a husband or lover. And by extension, Jung instructed these women to see him in that role. He was therefore the husband-lover to all women who joined his group, and they were his spiritual brides. As sociologist Dr. Yanya Lalich wrote in her essay, Dominance and Submission, the Psychosexual Exploitation of Women in Cults, male cult leaders will often force intimate relationships on their female members as a form of sexual exploitation. She explained that cult leaders seem to realize rather quickly, if they didn't already have it in mind, that a great source of power can be found in the sexual control of their followers. As the leader of Providence, Jung wasn't interested in playing matchmaker. He wanted the kind of control that comes from direct sexual power over any woman under his care. His rule was clear. The women of Providence belonged to him. And for the female members of Providence, they had to obey Jung's demands. If they were chosen to have sex with him, they were groomed to treat this as a privilege. To deny Jung was to deny God which gave these women no semblance of choice. Their bodies were Jung's to control. We don't know when or how Jung introduced this kind of sexual control over the women in his group, but we do know that from the beginning, Jung sought out beautiful women to join. And it isn't hard to assume that he did this solely for sexual reasons. He wanted to surround himself with beautiful women who would surrender themselves to him. And it worked. As the self-proclaimed voice of God, Jung endowed himself with unshakable influence. His followers saw him as divine and beyond reproach. By and large, Jung's system seemed bulletproof. By 1989, the group had grown significantly. However, Jung found it difficult to enjoy the full extent of his power while operating Providence out of his small apartment. Jung knew it was time for the group to move somewhere new. Jung envisioned a spiritual utopia, a place for his disciples to study and learn without the distractions of the outside world. He needed somewhere picturesque and isolated. Luckily, Jung knew just the spot. Later that year, Jung purchased a large piece of land in Sumakmi, the village where Jung grew up. He named the compound Wulmyongdong. Jung imagined Wulmyongdong as the innermost sanctum of Providence, the place where he could keep his most treasured members and brides close by. However, the terrain proved to be a problem. Initially, Jung wanted to create a stone garden where the rocks were set upright, but that required moving hundreds of massive boulders, some weighing 100 tons. 
According to Jung's website, every landscape architect deemed the job too dangerous, but that didn't stop him. Shortly after, Jung received a message from God telling him to do the work himself alongside his followers. As the Messiah, no one could deny Jung. If they did, it would be a direct insult to God himself. So the group got to work. They struggled to make Jung's vision a reality as they strained to lift the massive pieces of rock. They faced grueling work, likely without pay, but Jung viewed their efforts as a triumph. Images displayed on his website proudly showed members of the group in hard hats, along with the final product, a stunning hillside garden of massive rocks interspersed with trees and flowers. The site looked impressive, but for Jung, the garden only acted as the first component of the Wulmyung-dung natural temple. After completing his first project, Jung and his followers continued building out the land. Over the next few years, Jung transformed Wulmyung-dung into a fully functional center for followers and visitors alike. It's unclear how exactly Jung bankrolled this project, but it's likely that some of his members pitched in or held fundraisers to support the move. Previous groups, including the Unification Church, had wealthy backers who covered a variety of expenses. And the finished product certainly looked idyllic. A glass-walled building four stories tall served as a visitor center, and, as far as we can tell, the only building on the massive campus. What began as an unremarkable patch of untended land transformed into a lush campus that blended traditional Korean architecture with modern flourishes. For Providence, Wulmyung-dung showed the strength of the group, and more importantly, its leader. It also served as the perfect way for Jung to present Providence as a safe, exciting group. With a campus so lush and beautiful, it invited new members with the promise of salvation through Jung's teachings. Throughout the decade, Jung grew his base of followers. Providence expanded its reach across South Korea, growing its membership by the hundreds. Some lived at Wulmyung-dung, but many established their own Providence churches throughout the country. As the flock expanded, Jung continued to emphasize his role as deity, husband, and father. His system of control became an efficient, well-oiled machine. All elements of Jung's status as the next messiah were fine-tuned and perfected. For the women of Providence, Jung emphasized his role as the ultimate lover and husband. By this point, thousands of women were willing to declare themselves his spiritual brides. Most of these women had never even met their messiah and never would. Jung didn't visit every Providence church that sprang up in South Korea and didn't feel the need to. He existed as an omniscient, ever-loving God to these women, and that was more than enough to control them. But for a select few, Jung offered what he considered the truest path to salvation, sex. Jung selected the women he deemed the most worthy, paging through stacks of photographs to find women he found particularly desirable. Then he instructed them to join him in Wulmyung-dung for the so-called sacred ritual. This, he insisted, was the only way to truly purify a woman's soul and save her a spot in the kingdom of heaven. This was rape, though Jung denied this claim. Jung always wanted more members and more women to surround him. Throughout the decade, Jung created a recruitment plan that mirrored the Unification Church. 
Senior leaders of the group lured in potential members with intentionally vague descriptions of the group. Sometimes, recruiters wouldn't even mention Providence at all. Most people weren't introduced to Providence's more controversial ideas at first, especially not when it came to gender and sex. That came later. In the beginning, Providence presented itself as a place of love and worship, where Jung served as a benevolent leader with new, exciting ideas about God. The pitch was just vague enough to bring people in, and soon they were hooked. By the late 1990s, Providence claimed thousands of members. Jung had established a network of spiritual leaders who were expected to disseminate Jung's teachings to as many people as possible. While Jung didn't meet the vast majority of his followers, that wasn't an issue. If anything, the mysterious absence of Jung only furthered his status as the all-knowing spiritual leader that he claimed to be. At church services, Providence's spiritual leaders spoke about Jung's many sacrifices and his unflinching allegiance to God's holy path. Together, the congregation sang, prayed, and celebrated their Messiah's endless love. Jung cemented his image as an unstoppable divine force, able to control thousands of people without ever seeing them face to face. Members of Providence were given dual-framed images of Jesus and Jung, and instructed to pray to both photographs every night. Countless women were willing to save themselves for Jung by being his spiritual brides for the sake of their salvation. Jung seemed untouchable. But soon, even that wasn't enough. Despite his vile practices, Jung still believed in his duty to spread God's message of love to the entire world. While South Korea seemed like a good start, it still seemed like there was so much left to do. Jung felt millions of lost souls calling out for his help, and he knew that he needed to answer their prayers. From his idyllic compound in Wulmyongdong, Jung began planning a massive expansion of Providence. This required new housing, new recruitment methods, and a wider scope. Jung knew he needed followers who spoke Japanese and English and were willing to relocate. But that wasn't a problem. Dozens of people leapt at the challenge, willing to do whatever it took to bring Jung's divine grace to the sinful masses. And Jung, now in his 50s, appeared unflinching in his confidence. He was a god, a messiah, a holy messenger for the masses. Now it was time to heal the world. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Jung Myung Sok and his group Providence. In that episode, we'll discuss the group's ambitious expansion plans and how an unexpected scandal set the movement on a new path. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 
Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify. Spotify.